Welcome to another episode of Renegade Joint Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and Keller Williams agent. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. This group is about networking and doing deals. This ain't your grandma's Rhea, folks. No guru bullshit from the front. No smell of stale coffee, been gay, and or disappointment. You know what I'm talking about. And RDI is also this podcast where once a week I sit down with interesting and successful business people getting shit done, and I pick their brain for your entertainment and with any luck, hopefully, education. And if you enjoy this podcast, here's what I need you to do. If you haven't already, I need you to go onto iTunes and rate and review. 44 of you have done it. Thank you. For the other ones, come on, man. Hook a brother up. If you enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, don't do it. But I know you're listening. We have more listeners every week. So come on, man. Hook a brother up. I know. I know iTunes does not make that shit easy, man. I didn't invent it. Okay. Also, share it all across the internet. My guests are busy people and all that. Let's give them as much exposure as possible and let's grow the show. So if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, go to renegadedetroit.com. If you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash renegade Detroit investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit investment club. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess, on Snapchat at Jeremy A. Burgess, and go to YouTube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. All right, legal disclaimer. In no way, shape, or form should anything that I or my guests say be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decision or decisions, you contact a lawyer slash attorney slash other licensed professionals. Be an adult. Don't sue me. All right, folks, time for the Renegade Joint Investors Show Code of the Week, where I try to pick a quote that sets the tone for the podcast and maybe, for lucky, your week. This week's quote, determine never to be idle. It is wonderful how much may be done if you are always doing. Thomas Jefferson. Determine never to be idle. How idle are you normally, folks? Come on. Determine never to be idle. It's wonderful how much may be done if we are always doing. Thomas Jefferson. Let me introduce my guest, Mark Yushek. Uh Mark grew up and was exposed to real estate early by his parents and his uh, grandparents. They owned three rental properties, and his grandfather um, owned some rental properties in Detroit, Hamtramck. Graduated from CMU, obtained an MBA, and worked for a period of time for corporate America. He uh, bought his first rental property in 2005, leveraged himself fully, made his wife a little uncomfortable, to make it happen by taking out a HELOC, home equity line of credit, on his property and put down 20% and mortgaging the balance. He rehabbed the property, placed a tenant to cash flow, uh, barely $200 a month. And, of course, after less than a year, you guessed that the tenant defaulted and moved out. Wah, wah, wah. This time, the market was on fire in 2006. So he did a quick clean job, put it on the market, and sold it quickly for a 20-plus K profit. Paid off the HELOC, used the remainder to buy his first two rentals in Flint. The cash flow was fantastic, but if, I don't know if you guys remember that. Prices kept going too high, so um, he sat idle with the rentals and kept working his day job. Right around then, he became licensed as a real estate agent with the goal to access the MLS to find himself deals. He was scouring for deals for his friends as well, and combined with his day job income, he was really building confidence and was starting to excel at real estate investing in the AG game. Soon, his day job work performance <clears throat> slipped a little. And in 2010, he was lucky enough to be laid off. He used his license and acquired six more rental properties and flipped four more homes. He's a top producing associate broker, consistently selling eight to $9 million a year. 
for your real estate agents. Uh, he prides himself on not working for a franchise uh, nor having a cliche real estate team. His wife uh, and him have 20 free and clear properties and now own an apartment building with a fellow renegade and also do something like five to six rehabs a year. Right now, his focus has been on multifamily. With the big upswing, I'm sure you guys have noticed that too, in single-family home values, he's looking to sell off some of his properties that have appreciated and roll that equity into multifamily home investments. Mark, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Well, thank you. Awesome. So we booked this like... Ten months ago, <laughs> nine, ten months ago, something like that. At least, yeah, it was long. And then I reached out to you last week. I'm like, "Hey, you ready for next week?" And what was your response? Already, <laughs> already, exactly. Has it been a year already? <laughs> oh man, yeah. So hey, I really appreciate it. And for a lot of those folks who don't know Mark, he does come down here every now and then, like two times a year. I think I saw you last time at the um, at Tom's meeting, the bigger what do you call it? Yep. The- Sometimes I'll drop into the meetings that Tom does in Troy. If they're in the Troy area, yeah. If, if they're, they're in anything the Troy area. south of Troy, it's out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Where, so where do you live? Where are you at? Uh, we, my wife and I and family live in Goodrich. Okay. Which is on the southeastern side of Genesee County. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming down here. Um, that's kind of cool. So let's go back to the beginning. I like the so you're. I like the fact that your family was in real estate, and so you were young and you were paying attention and you noticed these things, right? What did you remember about it? You know, I remember probably the not so good things about it. Uh, you know, my parents were working class people and they bought their first rental property maybe when I was in my young teens. I don't exactly remember, but uh, I just remember my father always having to do the labor on the properties. They weren't hiring anything out. My mom was doing the books and managing tenants. They only had a handful of properties, uh, but, you know, overall it went very well and they were making great cash flow on it. That's yeah, pretty so. cool. So they're doing it really old school, like doing all the work themselves, yes. all the books. Yes, like. very, very old school. Yep. Yeah, that's a hard way to do it. Do you know how many they had about? Or? Oh, they only had three. Okay. Two in Redford Township and one in Wixom. Nice. Did they keep it forever? They sell them off at the end? Or? Uh, they eventually sold them off. Yeah. Yep. They make you do all the work like the like stereotypical <laughs> <laughs> investors. Guess what, kids? Yeah, right. <laughs> they did their best to leverage the kids. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, how do you feel about painting? I don't care. Grab that paintbrush. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, also you exposed by your um, your grandfather too, right? Yes. Yes. He had an extensive portfolio in Hamtramck and Detroit. Man, that he had a tougher stomach, right? So right. when well, was this though? Oh, I'd imagine he acquired most of those in maybe the 50s and 60s. Okay. So this is before the riots and all that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Still though, props, you know. Props to your grandpa. <laughs> I know what investing in Detroit's like, and that's kind of tough. What do you remember about your grandpa's uh, properties, if at all? He was somewhat similar to my dad in that uh, he did a lot of the work himself. Um, he didn't hire out much. Maybe you know do some trades with tenants to get some maintenance done, things like that. But otherwise, he was pretty stereotypical landlord. You know, do everything very frugally, and to them that meant doing it yourself. Yeah. Well, that must have had some sort of impact on you, right? Or you wouldn't have mentioned it in your bio. It's some lasting impact. Right. Well, that's where I really got a taste for it. It's where I really learned, you know, what they were doing and saw the power of, you know, investing in real estate and the cash flow that you can attain. So you you, you saw it even as a child as a positive thing, even though you saw a lot of the negative things. Right. Exactly. Okay. Much more mature than me. So <laughs> fast forward, though. Um Going to Central Michigan University. What first of all, what made you go to university? 
I think it was more of uh, just somewhat of pressure from family to not follow in their footsteps, to work with your mind, not with your hands. What did your parents do? Uh, my mom was a, uh, an aide, a teacher's aide, and my dad was an HVAC contractor. Okay. Yeah, so I guess it is. That's pretty... That is working working class, but I don't know. What did you study at uh, college? Uh, my undergraduate was in information systems, and then I graduated and immediately began working in the real world. And while I was working full time in my, you know, in the line of work that I got my degree in, I went back and uh, got my master's within two years. That sounds like fun. So you're working and got your master's, right? Yeah, yep, I was doing both simultaneously. Yeah, no, no, fuck that. What was your master's in? <laughs> <laughs> it was actually in human resources. Damn, damn. And never used any of it. No, not at all. <laughs> so when you're doing your corporate work. Uh, the whole time, are you just thinking about real estate in the back of your mind, or you were pretty happy doing it? You know, in the beginning, I was pretty happy with it. I thought this was pretty cool. I thought this was the way life was supposed to go. You know, you go to college, you get a degree, and you just start working for a corporation. Uh, but that got pretty monotonous pretty quickly, and it was just boring. You know, you're just working within a box, and it got old. Um, you know, your your success was really measured by somebody else deciding how good you were. Yeah, that's a little tough, right? Right, right. It just got old, and it just uh, it just wears you down. Yeah, Were so the long hours. I know you had to you had to commute a long way too, didn't you? To try, uh, I think at, at times. Yep, I was commuting a long way. Um, I initially started working in automotive, and that just by default resulted in very long hours, uh, a lot of traveling. Um, so I eventually gave that up, and I got into the banking industry, and that was about as dull as it gets. <laughs> Sorry. I so it's as boring as we imagine it to be, basically. It's worse. It's worse. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. You just come in and people are just everybody looks miserable, like, oh God, why am I doing this? Yeah, it's just like lemmings walking into a building. Oh, <laughs> so funny. <laughs> like not another day. Right. God. Right. Yeah. Everyone's just miserable and it just brings down morale. And yeah. then you don't want to be there. You don't want to perform well. So that's really when I started, uh, you know, thinking in the back of my mind, we got to do something else here. I got to have something more to it. I'm just not good with status quo. No. Humans are funny that way. Sometimes we need a significant external motivator to make us do something we should probably be doing anyway. And in this case, you're just being bored to death, literally, in your <laughs> job. And you're like, I don't know how many more years I could do this. Very true. That's exactly yeah. what it was. So. How did you convince your wife? I'm always interested in this, right? Because a lot of people have to do some convincing. One wants to do it. The other one doesn't. It's pretty rare. Both spouses like, yeah, let's just do it, right? Yeah, it was very – it was well, – granted, this was 11 or 12 years ago, so I don't remember exactly how the scenario went. But I do recall a fair amount of resistance and a whole lot of analysis to a, to a certain degree, not the in-depth analysis that we're using now, Um but it was more of just every worst case, what if scenario had to be flushed through. Mm. How did so? Did you like write it out, put it on a board, or just <laughs> I, I? I'm very interested in how you convince somebody who doesn't want to do it, right? Because she probably was like, "Why don't you just keep doing your job, right?" Yeah, essentially, that's really what it was. You yeah. know, maintain status quo. What we have is working. Why should we rock the boat? Don't rock the boat, Mark. <laughs> Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, we weren't writing anything out, but just having good conversation about all the benefits of proceeding with doing some investing and all the risks. And it, at the end, it really made sense to 
at least take a step forward and invest. I like that. I go. I just read a quote, post a quote a couple of days ago. I'll go anywhere as long as it's forward. That's like totally my mindset now. Like whatever it is, I'm open to the opportunity, but I, we're going this way. <laughs> Which, I'm not going the other way. We're, we're going this way. So how well do you remember your first deal? I remember it rather well that at the time it was in uh, Grand Blank. And it was Grand Blank at that time. And it still is right now in current market conditions because rebounding so much. But the values were so high, it really did not make any sense from a cash flow perspective to buy a you know, a, a rental property. They just didn't cash flow well, especially if you were going to leverage with debt. Um, so we scoured and found a potential deal and it ended up being an estate sale that we were able to negotiate what we felt was a great price. Mm. Um, looking back now, if I had to do that deal over again, it'd be like, hell no. No way you would do it. <laughs> no, no, it was a terrible deal. Yeah. But at the time, it was all that we had to work with. I wasn't willing to invest in the city of Flint or invest somewhere that was more than like 10 or 15 minutes away from where we lived. Uh, because in the back of my mind was you do the work yourself. Cause that's how I always witnessed growing up. Uh, so we did, we bought this property. It was, uh, I think we negotiated maybe 10 or 12 grand under list price. And it was already pretty distressed to begin with. Cause it wasn't a state sale. Um, we had to do a home equity line of credit on our primary residence just to come up with a down payment. We really had no down payment for this. And that was when it was easy to get money. So we got the HELOC with no issues and then got a, uh, basically it was an 80-20 loan. Yeah. The 20% came from our HELOC and then we financed the other 80% because it was not owner occupied for the mortgage on the property itself. And we did a very, very light rehab to it. It was mostly a huge savings because we did all the work ourselves. We got a tenant placed, I think within three to four weeks of us owning it. That's pretty quick. Do you remember the process you went through and how you qualified the tenant? Or Well, back then, there wasn't like Craigslist and rent links and all that sort of stuff. We did the old-fashioned way, the way that I knew just growing up. You put a sign in the yard and you run an ad in the paper. You ran an ad in the paper. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Old school, folks. Did, did they call from the ad in the paper or they're from the sign in the yard? Nope. They called from an ad in the paper because well, the tenants relocated... They were currently renting a home, I believe, somewhere in the Waterford area or Pontiac area, and I don't remember what the circumstance was, why they needed to be in Genesee County, but they they did find the ad in the paper, and that's how we ended up placing them. All right, so, it's, so it did work. I remember I placed ads early 2006. Uh, I, they didn't work very well. I didn't do it for rentals. Though. I was trying to look for we buy houses cash. Right. I ran the, t- the stereotypical ad and just wasted a lot of money. So yeah, I know, I know how that hurts. So now your wife's stressed out. You leverage the HELOC. You do the rehab yourself. You buy basically on 100% financing. Exactly. And the goal was to, to keep it as a rental, essentially, for cash flow, right? Yes, that's exactly what the idea was. We you know, we thought 150 to 200 bucks a month was good cash flow. Yes. And then it went sideways. <laughs> it didn't necessarily... It, it all ended very well. Looking back, um, you know, we got very lucky. I think it was just... Uh, good chances of the circumstances, but the tenant, I think they end up getting a divorce or something, but there was some type of relationship issue between the two of them where they split and as a result left our property vacant. Um, at that time, the market was on fire because we had bought that in 2005 and 2006, like spring of 06 was just boom and it was ridiculous. Um, so we cleaned up the property even further. The tenants really didn't trash the property. They were rather respectful. That was nice of them, so it didn't mess it up too bad. Right, right. <laughs> so we cleaned it up, 
and uh, listed it for sale. And I think we got an offer on it within a couple of weeks and went through the standard protocol of closing and we made a little bit of a profit on it. Um, at that time, it was good motivator just to go out and find more deals and learned a lot. And it gave us a good taste in our mouth for wanting more and better cash flow. Yeah, that first check. There's something about that first <laughs> flip check, right? Isn't there? Exactly. As a matter of fact, my wife made a copy of the title company check. Uh, we had the HELOC paid off out of our proceeds. I think we netted like eight grand or something from the sale. It really wasn't a whole lot. But at the time, it was just the perfect motivator to keep on doing more. Eight grand, made all the mistakes and still made eight grand. That's not bad. <laughs> That's a good learning experience, right? Right. Also, uh, I'd rather be lucky than good. So 2006 was a good year to sell shit. I sold a bunch of shit in 2006. I remember how good it was. <laughs> <laughs> that it was. It was pretty awesome. I, Of course, I thought it was going to go on like that forever, too. But obviously, you didn't think so because you were looking at the market after you sold it. And you're like, no way. It's going crazy, right? Right. So we took the, you know, we had built up some cash from the time we had bought that home until the time we sold it. And we had a little bit of equity left over at the end of the day. And we bought a couple of properties in the city of Flint. And those were good to us overall. Uh, we paid a premium for them because we were buying in like, like just like right after the crash, you know, right after things started to tumble. So maybe late 06, if memory serves. Mm. Uh, and, and we did the prep work on those ourselves as well. We're out there hustling and cleaning up these things and getting them rent ready. And we placed tenants quickly and they stayed stable for a while. Um, we didn't really necessarily have any problems with them. Um, until the city of Flint really started to take a tumble. Yeah, I was going to say, so you got your wife on the grand blank, and then how you pivot from that to Flint rentals. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a 180-degree turnaround. Right. Yeah. Well, everything's a trade-off. So yeah. in grand blank, we weren't necessarily getting cash flow, but we were safe in an equity position. In Flint, it was totally opposite. You know, the cash flow is fantastic, but the properties are just terrible. It's just dealing with all of the things that come with big city investing. Yeah. Well, especially in Michigan, especially, right? Right. Kind of beaten up and all that. So you, you bought this in 2000, you bought the rentals in 2006, seven? Yeah, approximately. Okay. But they treated you fairly well, right? They did. They did. We found uh, the one property I remember very vividly. It was a fantastic tenant, took very good care of the home. And then I think maybe two years later, we had bought that property on a land contract. So we were maintaining, we had good cash flow. The land contract payment was low. And we were making a great spread. It was exactly how investing was supposed to work. We were doing very well with it. Um, and then, unfortunately, that house ended up burning down. Oh, So we lost that one completely. Uh, we paid off the note. We didn't default. Uh, we did you know, the honorable thing. We paid the guy off, and there was a little bit of money left afterward, and we didn't rebuild. It was It's in Flint. It yeah, was, there's no reason, right? We demolitioned it, took the insurance proceeds, and let that you know, we, we liquidated that one. Yeah. That's why you have insurance, folks. How'd the fire start? You know, it was a cooking fire. Yeah. yeah. Yep. They had started cooking something on the stove and they weren't feeling well. I think it was the tenant's girlfriend. She f was feeling ill and took some type of medicine that makes you drowsy and fell asleep on the couch. Boom. Yep. Exactly. There was everybody. Okay. No, oh, the shit. girlfriend passed away in the fire. Oh man. That's, that's a bummer, dude. Yep. God. Yeah, that's a real bummer. How'd the other one go? So the other house was actually probably the only house we ever really lost on, our only failure. Uh, it was a very large home in the city. It took a lot of money to rehab it. We had good tenants in there for a while. And then as the city started to turn, we were getting turnover on tenants, and the tenant quality was going down. 
and we had tenants that just beat the hell out of the house. It was always one problem after another. Um, it finally, we just reached our breaking point and we sold it to a, a land contract buyer, which is always a lot of fun. Oh, learned yeah. a lot about that. Yeah. And those people inevitably ended up defaulting. Uh, this was maybe in 2012, maybe 13-ish, somewhere in there. The house had been broken into several times. Plumbing was stripped. Uh, walls were kicked in trying to get the copper wiring. That's when scrap prices were so high. I remember that because a bunch of my houses, they just yanked the wires right out of the walls, man. Yeah. Fuck. Sucked. Yeah, Sucked big time. So bad. Yeah. It, you know, the plumbing is one thing that's easy to replace with plastic, but the wiring that's a whole nother animal it's not simple especially in those older houses there's not all that room like there is with drywall if you're in one of those old like that plaster right and oh my god that's a nightmare yeah and it's a real talent to go back and try to fix that so it looks right it's it's just it's endless it's a massive rehab at that point and when you got a property that's worth next to nothing it's not worth it no it's not and that's i noticed that too although it was in 2008 in detroit i got really bad in 2008 and got better in 2009 the turnover was terrible mm-hmm. and i saw the tenants take a nose dive down too they've since come up a lot but it was yep. it was rough i imagine it was very similar to what was oh, going it, on in yep yeah. exactly yeah it was just it was just terrible that was one of the properties we wish we'd have never bought um but you know we didn't let it go for taxes uh we, at one point we i do remember we took out a um a, we did like a cash out refi on it we paid off the cash we paid the lender that did the cash out refi for us. It was a credit union. Um, and we ended up just, I was just at my wits end with it. Mentally, it wasn't worth trying to chase it to try to salvage this mess. Um, so I threw it on Craigslist and I sold it on a quick claim deed. Boom. How much did you get for it? I, I got three grand for it. Oh, <laughs> but the mental anguish that it cleared That's true. <laughs> was invaluable. That's true. And an important lesson. Do you do any more rentals in Flint now or? Well, I did. The one that burned down, that tenant was fantastic. It was his girlfriend that passed away in the fire. So he was still there. He had nowhere to live. So we took uh, the insurance money. And at this point, bear in mind that the market had just tanked. It was right in the bottom of the barrel. And I uh, took the tenant out and I let him choose what house he wanted me to buy for him. And we retained him as a tenant. That is awesome. So you're like, hey, don't go anywhere. I could buy you something. Right. Yeah. And he wanted to be right in the same neighborhood where the house burned down. And we ended up buying another property about three blocks away on a short sale for eight grand. That is an amazing strategy. Did you still have this property? Is he still renting it? Nope. He ended up passing away of natural causes a couple of years ago, and I've sold the property. Damn. So, you, so now you got rid of all of them, right? Yep. I've got nothing left in the city of Flint. Yeah, I don't blame you. When did you When did you get rid of the last one, though? Timing-wise, I'm just thinking. Uh, two here. years ago. Perfect. It was that one. Perfect timing. Perfect yep. timing. Yep. Ah, that's really interesting, man. So, and you're going through all this. Obviously, your wife must have been on board, right? Multiple Flint properties. Yes, she was very much so in the beginning. But as we started to have a family, and she's working her day job, and things are becoming more complex with the way we're investing and too many moving parts, she more became hands off and just let me run the show and trusted my judgment. Periodically, ask for updates, or I'd tell her what's going on. Um. That was it. I was pretty much empowered. To Earned do what the trust. Was, right, right. You can do whatever you want, right? Like, okay, you're not going to ruin everything now, so <laughs> you can do what you want to do, Mark. Exactly. That's pretty cool. And at some point, you had to put the pieces together that, wait a second, I can't keep doing all this work or I can't do more of them, right? Right. When did you start to put those kind of pieces together? Well, it was more just of 
you know, at that point I was still doing the work, a lot of the work myself. I didn't have a whole lot of people to call upon. And I, at that point, I don't think I was smart enough to realize that I could call upon other people and that it was easier to write checks than swing a hammer. Oh yeah. So we just kind of slowed down with what we were doing. Um, I became more busy at work, just maintaining, you know, trying to keep the work life thing going and just maintaining the two properties that we had that were struggling as it was. Yeah, that's pretty rough. When did you get into flipping though? Because that's that's really that's when I I think that's right when I ran when I met you too. You're just maybe you done one or two or something like that. Right, right. Um, I think the flipping started maybe in early 2009, late 2008. It's right when everything was just going right down in the tank. Yeah, it st- everything was just hurting across the board. And I had an old broker that was involved in flipping. And he had very, very specific criteria what, you know, pretty much 99% of anything on the market was a no-go for him for flipping. Um, So I just kind of silently mimicked what he was doing and started searching for properties that made sense. And there's really no magic to it. It's, you know, buying something distressed, make enough of an improvement to sell it for a profit and the spread is yours. So I was going after properties that everybody else was overlooking, um, because at that time you could be very selective and I didn't have a whole lot of cash to work with. So I was going for the, the low price stuff, not making an incredibly big spread and doing, you know, grinding out four or five a year. And I was at that point using contractors to do the work while I was still working a full-time job. Yeah. So you did end up, how'd you get, how'd you find these contractors? You know, it was mostly just through word of mouth, talking with other people in the area, um, meeting people through the local landlord association finding out who the guys were, who the guys are that other landlords were using and as necessary, you know, trying to convince them to come do some work for me because there's a lot of loyalty that runs among contractors that work for landlords. (laughs) So it had to take some persuasion to get some people to do some work for me. But then when they saw that, you know, I could provide them with some decent jobs and I'd pay quickly and not give them any crap. Um, it went, it just went well. And some of those same guys I still use today. How would you handle letting go from doing all the work to passing it off to general contractor, just writing a check? Is that process smooth or a lot of stress? Yeah, it was overall. It was smooth. It just became a thing of capacity. I didn't have the time to go work a day job, driving forty five minutes one way, and then at night doing rehab work and on the weekends doing rehab work. So just by default, it pretty much had to happen if I wanted to grow the business at all. Yeah, it's a good point. Again, here we are. Don't change until you absolutely have to change, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's like the human condition. <laughs> That's me too. Get pushed in the corner and, and and then you change. So where were you doing your flips at? I was only doing them in Southern Genesee County. Okay. And to be honest with you, it's still the only place I focus. Um, I'm not one of these guys that, you know, casts a net far and wide and take anything that looks remotely like a deal. Um, I only want to do flips that are maybe 20 to 30 minutes from where we live. Uh, just because even though I'm not doing the work, I've got contractors who are, I want to be able to stop in every day just to keep my finger on the pulse of what's happening. Yeah. Now, at some point while you're doing all this, you're buying houses for yourself to flip all that. You start, hey, maybe I'll do this agent thing, right? That's kind of a tough thing to get into, especially at the time you got into it, right? Right. How did you kind of piece that together? So I was still had a day job at that time. Um, so I wasn't relying on any type of agent work as our primary source of income. And I was using it more as a way to find more rentals and find more potential flips. So at when I started, it was more of just having access to the database. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily to make any money 
any any money from commission deals. It was just to fulfill our own interest of more rentals, more flips. Um, and then one thing just started to lead to another. You know, people knew I was in the business, or people saw that I was becoming successful at doing flipping and investing in rentals. Mark, and can you find me one? Of, yeah, that's exactly what it was. Just having conversation with people and start, you know, just go to work for them. Yeah, you kind of went the opposite route, though. You didn't join like a big chain, just kind of went out and did your own thing. How did you make that decision? How did you come to that conclusion? Well, I'm pretty sensitive to fees. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I, at the time, I didn't need overhead of what these big franchises charge just to hang your license on their wall. Mm. I just needed, again, when I started out, I just wanted access to that MLS database. I didn't want all those fees. They weren't it, the service that they could potentially provide to somebody else wasn't of value to me, so I didn't sign on with them. Interesting. What when you, so when you were looking at the cap rates on that, what were the cap rates you were saying? I'm just curious. You know, on single family homes, I never really looked at cap rates. It was more of just a sanity test. You know, if you can buy a property for under 10 grand and it can rent for 5 to 600 bucks a month and maybe needs 1500 bucks in just prep work, it. it's a no-brainer. Yeah. You would just do that deal. And I think anybody, especially nowadays, today with the market the way it is, would instantly pick up that deal sight unseen. Oh yeah. Well, at some point, <clears throat> you kind of alluded to the fact that your performance at work maybe started to uh slip a little bit. Uh, maybe walk us through how that happened, right? Yeah, so I had as I said it was a banking job and the interest level in doing that type of work was just so mundane and boring. Um, it, I had no interest in it. It was not self-fulfilling whatsoever. Uh, you know, just to fulfill, you know, your being there every day. <laughs> hey, Mark. And financially, it was just boring. It was just, it was like flatlining. We're going to go ahead and need you to come in on Saturday, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and if you can make it on Sunday too, that would be great. Thanks. Is that what it was? Basically like office space? Uh, yeah, it was just the epitome of a dull office and I just could not handle it. So it started to work out really well where I started, I was doing deals for myself and had a couple of clients that I was helping out as a buyer's agent. I wasn't doing any listings at that point. Um, and it was just working out well. I'm starting to see some nice cash flow coming in off the rentals. I was making some commission income. The flips were going well. It was becoming a lot to manage uh, above and beyond having a day job. And I didn't have like an office staff or anything like that. My wife works full-time. She still does, works full-time. Um, so it was really on me. And I was the one that was driven that wanted to make this happen and do it. So something kind of had to give. Mm. And at that point, it was it was the day job. It's what I like doing the least. So... <laughs> well, it's what you, got let go the most. Did you quit or were you nope, fired? No, nope, no. Nope. Uh, they did a massive layoff and it was me among 300 people and it worked out beautifully. I couldn't have asked for it to work out any better. Yeah, so it wasn't personal. It was more like, yeah, no. we're just getting rid of everybody. No, right. Exactly. It's, you know, again, the economy was in the tank. This was 2010 and uh, they were just doing mass layoffs all across the board. Did you get a severance or anything like that? Or did just kick you loose? I did, but I had only been there, I think, two or three years. So it was minuscule. I think it's equal to like one week of pay or something ridiculous. Yeah. Here's a here's a pack of gum. Don't chew it all at once. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Go home and high five your wife or or how did you sell that? Honey, I lost my job, but great news. I can do this real estate <laughs> full time now. <laughs> high five. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember I called her on my way home and she's like, what do you need? What are you doing? And I'm like, I'm on my way home. And the phone just went dead silent <laughs> for about 30 seconds. And I just let it stay that way. Mm. <laughs> Dry out the suspense. <laughs> <laughs> then it was like, what do you mean? I said, 
well, you know, I just got laid off. They did a massive uh, cut, but, you know, don't worry. Everything's going to be just fine. We'll be, you know, we got this. We got all these other irons in the fire. Income is really the least of my concern at this point. Mm. And really, I had no concerns. I had I drove home with a big smile on my face, and everybody else is walking away, you know, with like an arrow to the chest. Trick question. Do you think you would have left if you hadn't been fired or... I know this is a little bit like if your aunt had yeah. balls, she'd be your uncle. But still, it's a good question, right? I mean, right. You know, honestly, I don't know that I necessarily would have left. I probably would have just kept on riding the wave and just doing what I was doing because, you know, you're it's like you're almost getting paid double, right? Yeah. Inertia, right? Just keep doing the same <laughs> thing because uh, you've been doing it. Right, right. But looking back, I'm glad that it worked out the way it did because it gave me back a ton of time. And that time was obviously very precious and uh, being able to do more. It's, it's kind of funny you went right to buyers, though. Like, I have a hard time with buyers. And that you just I didn't didn't want to list anything. You just went straight to buyers. Investor buyers, too. Right. Commissions on those are very low, right? It is very low. But when you're working a full-time job, that's, you know, that's gravy. That's gravy? <laughs> it doesn't bother you at all? It didn't at the time. Yeah. You know, coming from nothing to getting at least minimum commission, it's more than what I had. And yeah, I think even more importantly, I didn't think of it as a job because I just really love doing it. Okay. It was, it was very self-fulfilling instead of working in an office. Yeah. So you like buyers actually. You just like working with buyers. Well, it's really, it's very much shifted since then. Okay. <laughs> Not anymore. That's what I heard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll, any business is good business, but some yeah. is better than others. <laughs> That's true. Especially in this market, right? Right. Like working with investor buyers, maybe not the... Uh... Tippy, tippy top of the market. Sure. Now, at some point while you're doing this, you're like, wait a second. I can do this business full time. Yeah. And it really, at the time I got laid off, that's when it was, okay, this is full time. So you're driving home. Like, hey, wait a second. I can start making some phone calls. I'm going <laughs> I'm to get busy tonight, right? right. <laughs> what time do they fire you early in the morning? Or? It was. Yep. Yep. You, they don't even tell you not to come in. It's right when you come in in the morning and then it's, oh, come here for a second. Really? Yeah. Oh, by the way, let security yeah. escort you out? Basically, yeah. yeah. Here's a box. <laughs> Take your cell phone. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> here's all your shit, Mark. Go home. Yep. So driving home. And so then the next threat that day, you just start right back in, right? Yeah, exactly. That afternoon, I think I had to go to one of our rental properties for one thing or another. I can't remember what it was. And then I was working for a broker at the time. So I immediately went and signed up for a ton of floor time. You know, I didn't know anything else at that point. I wasn't, uh, you know, trained or know a lot about prospecting. It was wait for leads to come to me, and that was through floor time. For those who don't know what floor time is, please explain. So floor time is when you're basically working as an admin at a brokerage for free at the front desk, Yep. waiting for usually in-print advertising leads to call in to get more information about a listing. And they do that here at Keller Williams, too. And they say, hey, guess what? You get all the leads when you, you get for answering the phone for between these hours, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. And yep. at that brokerage, I think it was a two or four hour block. And I just signed up for as much as I could. I didn't have anything else going on at the time. And I did pick up some good leads that way. Uh, we were a big REO brokerage. And we got a lot of phone calls because that's when it was a it was a buyer's market at that point. So it, the timing of from that regard worked out really well. Yeah, especially you don't mind working with buyers. I, it's, it takes a special person, I think, to work with buyers too, right? <laughs> you obviously have that patience. You can make them make a decision. <laughs> Me, not so good. <laughs> right. All right. So when did you realize you wanted to go out and do your own thing, though? 
Well, I knew it before I was even laid off that I just this isn't cutting it. This is not fulfilling to me. This is not, uh, you know, like what I do now, I think of it as more of like a hobby and I get paid well to do my hobby. So I think just after doing the first couple of just investment deals, even though they weren't all that savvy or all that pretty, just really gave me a taste in my mouth to keep on doing more. Yeah. But now you're doing like eight to $9 million a year in retail sales too. Right. Which, okay. If you're from California, it doesn't sound like a lot, but in Michigan, that's actually a fair number of houses. Like, Especially in Genesee County. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's not like they're selling for a lot, right? So right. that's a shit ton of houses, dude. It is. It's between last year. I think I had 82 yeah. sides. That's a lot. How'd you do that? And you're flipping? Yep. I'm still doing. Yep. So we're still doing, you know, the flipping has kind of slowed up a little bit this year. I think we're on our fourth one right now. Um, so, you know, relatively speaking, it's slowed up a little bit, done some wholesaling, um, but just, just out there grinding, treating people well. I know you wholesaled. Tell me about this, Mark. (laughs) Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) We got another one, folks. (laughs) How'd you get into wholesaling? I was doing it with a partner. Um, I think we started maybe in like 2011 or 12. I can't remember what it was. And we were just doing like really old school, sending out yellow letters. Shit works, dude. They did work. I it did work, but we actually just dissolved our partnership maybe six months ago. The return on it for the amount of time we were putting into it, and we weren't doing it effectively by any means. We were we were really doing it old fashioned. We weren't leveraging a lot of online technologies and things like that. Um, so we just we dissolved it. We let it go. It wasn't a good use of our time. But we probably did twelve, fifteen deals. That's not bad. Mm-hmm. Over how many years, you think? Three. Three? That's not bad. So it, it was good, extra side cash, um, but it just became down, came down to a function of not a good use of time when you're looking at how much hours you're putting into doing mailings and the cost and things like that. Yeah, wholesaling is kind of kind of got to be all in on it, I think. You yeah. do, exactly. You know, full-time wholesalers can do very well. I don't think the part-time guys do all that well. No. It's kind of similar to like real estate agents. You're either all Actually, in or you're... I would you're, say yes. Yep. Yeah. You nailed that one right on the head. So... So that's why we let, and actually I gave my whole interest to my, the partner I had and I haven't talked to him in a while. I don't know if he's even still doing it or utilizing the name. Just let him go and like, Hey, you know what? I'm tired of this. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And it was very professional. We didn't end on bad terms. And I assured him if he finds any good deals in my wheelhouse that I'll be his buyer. Yeah. You got first right refusal. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You better call me first. (laughs) Exactly. I helped out. Did you actually, when you were doing the wholesaling, did you go get the contracts or did the other person go get the contracts? How'd you divide that up? No, we were always together, okay. so we have we, we still to this day. I always drive around with contracts. You never know when there's going to be a good deal you can tie up. I fucking love, I always drive around with contracts too. Like yep. literally, I have them electronically. I have hello sign yep. and I have physical contracts on my possession. Yeah, so, do it old school. That's right. So, do you remember what your script was when you were doing your wholesale calls? We never did cold calling. We didn't do the cold calling. Didn't do any cold calling. Uh, uh-uh. we didn't do cold calling. We did uh, bandit signs, direct mail. I think we put up some Craigslist ads, which just always ended up being bottom feeders. Yeah, dude. Um, the bandit signs in the Craigslist. <laughs> yeah. The bandit signs weren't so bad. We got some deals off the bandit signs. Um, we did have a We Buy Houses ad in the local paper that ran for years. We caught some ads. We caught some deals that way. Really? And then in, uh, when you go in a lot of rest areas and gas stations, there's always like that wall of advertisement. We were advertising on those, like that type of medium. Interesting. Yeah. You, so you did do really old school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You ever do any postcards or anything like that? Or we did some runs of postcards as well. Yep. But we kind of failed in that we didn't do we weren't repetitive with it. Yeah. We would do one mailing and then we would just get Yeah, this this doesn't work. It didn't work. Yeah. Yeah, Like I said, we weren't doing this full time. We didn't have 
you know, like a good process to it. It was just, this sounds good. Let's try it. <laughs> but at the same time, you're doing this, you're building a decent sized retail business. That's right. probably why you weren't doing that well at the wholesale. I, I don't know. That's how. exactly it. Yeah. To get eight to nine million in Michigan, right. that's. And that's only happened within the past couple of years. But, you know, obviously it's been building up to that point. But still, that's so, a fair amount of work. 82 sides? Is that what you said? Last year it was. Yeah, yeah. That's a shit ton of sides, dude. That's a lot of doors. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. You're not doing much wholesaling. If you're just, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you're driving around. And you're chasing tenants and you're, yeah, no. you're managing rehabs. Uh, the wholesaling then just becomes what can I cut out that isn't the best use of my time? Yeah. And it was that. Well, it sounds like too. You didn't necessarily enjoy it as much, right? No, you know, part of me, like morally, just the way that I am and the way I'm wired, I like to feel like I'm adding value. And wholesaling, I don't, I don't always get that feeling. You know, there's a need for everyone, and there's a, sometimes you need a cash buyer instantly. Um, but I like to feel like I'm adding value, and with that, it's it always seemed like you're more taking advantage of a situation than you were adding value. Well, you kind of are. <laughs> right. right. It's true. Yeah. It's true. These people have generally put themselves in a position where you're the only one who can help them. That's you right. Know? That's uh, so. Yeah, you're right about that. Um, I think it's a personality thing too. You kind of have to be a little. I don't know. I don't want to say tougher, but a little, a little brazen. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you have to have thick skin to deal with some of those people that are got to be a little aggressive. Positions. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Right. Yep. Little no bullshit too, because you deal with a lot of fucktards. You know? Oh yeah, they're yeah. everywhere. Yeah, yep. a lot of people that expect you to pay their back taxes, and you know they tell you what they want for a property, but come to find out that's what they need to net. That's one of my favorite things about being an agent, as I I'm dealing with people who plan years in advance. You don't make as much money, but let me tell you, they, all their things are in a row. Everything's done right. There's not this like days of our lives bullshit, right? Yep. The wholesale world is like stuffed full of it. You know, as the world turns, I've, what are you talking about? I haven't looked in two and a half years. I'm like, oh crap, <laughs> I got to babysit this damn thing. So yep. yeah, I didn't know you did the wholesaling thing. That's kind of cool. That I that's... did. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really anything I keep on my resume or advertise. <laughs> just, there's nothing wrong with it. No. But just... Uh, it just wasn't anything that I really felt passionate about no and you really like doing the retail thing and the flipping thing right i do very much so yeah yep when did you decide to do because obviously i know you needed money for the retail but you could have gone the other direction right you could have just done a lot more investing and a little bit more real estate agent but instead you kind of went way more real estate agent and just a little bit of investing how'd you kind of feel out that process so well, I, you know, I got laid off from my job, so I needed to find something that was a little bit more instantly gratifying as far as trying to replace an income that was lost. And I was just had way too much pride. I would not even sign up for unemployment. So I never took a penny of unemployment benefits um, just because Boom, I was... you're a fine American, sir. I was just insistent on, hell with this, I'm going to make this work my way, and I'm not taking any aid. <laughs> That's, so I think that's, that's the right attitude. Really drove me to make that the, make sure that this happens, um, and so that's where the commission deals were more. You know, they filled that void much better. Yeah, but from zero to, I mean, that's a lot of work, right? From zero to nine million, that's a. I know how hard that I'm trying to do yeah. it right now. Right, right. It, right. It's it, an incredible amount of work, and it's just. It's a lot of bite in your tongue, even when you know you're right. <laughs> and it's <clears throat> just uh, connecting and getting in front of as many people as absolutely possible and doing an immense amount of spending an immense amount of money on advertising. Yeah. So besides floor time, 
how did you find your buyers and your sellers? So I can't even remember the last time I did floor time. It's probably been three or four years. Yeah. I Floor time is just almost right there with wholesaling. It's just not oh, yeah. a good use That's of time. That's a grind anymore. too. That's a real grind. It is. It is. Um, you know, right now, sending out a lot of postcards, just sold, just listed postcards, getting your name out into the area where you do the most amount of business. Um, I still ad- I do a half-page ad in the monthly newspaper that goes out in the community. Damn, I'm really? one of only You're still doing a couple old ages. school I stuff. I still really do a lot of old school stuff, yeah. But obviously it. it's working, right? It is working and it's a lot of just name recognition. It's not uh you know, it's not like people are calling me instantly, but when they see my face, they're like, oh, yeah, you're the guy that's always in the newspaper. You're always in my mailbox. It's that type of thing. So it's at least getting your name out there and your name known before you're needed. How do you track that stuff? Because that's the one thing about it that always kind of turned me off was I couldn't tie enough of my deals back to it, which is how I ended up cutting it. But obviously, it's working for you. This old school stuff is working. How do you track it? How do you manage it? I don't track it all that well, I'll be honest with you. When you're doing that many deals, you know, tracking those minuscule things that you're doing, they don't become a priority. You're like, no, I'm not going to track it. But obviously it's working. Right, right. But I know like what the monthly advertising expenses are. But that that becomes good stuff to take with you on listing appointments to, you know, make your presence even better known when you're trying to win over a listing versus your competitor. Okay, so you actually take your marketing material with you to listing I do. Obviously, the in-print stuff I do. Um, and then uh, we talk about the online presence otherwise. Yeah. Are you doing anything online to drum up leads or anything like that? Nothing more than what any other agent can do right out of the box. Um, you know, with the the big heavy hitters, Realtor.com, Zillow, Trulia, and then anything else that you can get out of the point two network. But that's where, you know, a- any agent really can drum that up and talk that up. Yeah, well, hey, you're the agent I have in front of me. So <laughs> what is, um, if you don't mind me asking if it's too personal, tell me, no, what how much do you spend a month on this old school marketing stuff? I'm just curious. It's about 700 a month. Okay. So that's not, that it's bad. not that bad. No. It doesn't take a whole lot of deals to cover the spend on that. Yeah. And for the impact that you're getting for the name recognition, it's volumes. And you're doing it just in the areas you're targeting, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And then well, otherwise it's postcard marketing. Is it the same marketing though? Like, is it your postcard in the newspaper or is there a call to action or? Uh, the call to action is... Hold on, hold on. Hey, folks, before he helps you, don't compete in the same market as him, all right? Don't be that dickhead. You know, <laughs> Use this in your market, all right? He's helping you out here, right? <laughs> if you're going to address some of this old school stuff, all right, go ahead. I want to put that disclaimer in. So uh, the postcards, I got an algorithm that I use to target certain homeowners that I think are going to be prime and ready to list. Um, <clears throat> so... That's very specific niche marketing right to those homeowners in a given community. And then it's reinforced really by seeing my my listings in my face and my full body shot in the newspaper, you know, showcasing the listings that I do have. Okay. So you do you do like here are the listings I have in the paper traditional. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And then if I do a transaction in their area and they get hit with a just listed, just sold card, it's just that much more reinforcement. Interesting. How did you figure out how to put this together? Is this something your broker taught you or you reading a book or? It was more just doing some online research. Hmm. Just, you know, reading proven tactics. Do you have an assistant or anything helping you out or you do all this eight to nine million on your own? I do it all on my own, um, except for processing some of the postcards. I've got an admin that very, very periodically will help me 
Dude, just manage mailings. We got to get you some VAs. So you actually do you write out all your own PAs and do all that stuff? I type every one of my own PAs. I Damn. send them out through AuthentiSign for e-signature. I do all that myself. Oh, man. You know what? You'd probably be $40 million if you got a couple of assistants. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? How right? many hours a week are you spend doing this? You know, I've really done a good job of kind of maintaining it, and I just piece in my downtime to deal with rentals and checking on flips and so forth. So... 40, 50 hours a week. I'm not that's pretty cranking that use of hard. time. Right. Yeah. You get it down to science because that's, yeah. Yeah. It's a grind, but I, I, that 40, that's not bad, right? Mm-hmm. It may be 50 hours a week. It Damn. depends. You know, spring, early summer, it's, you just do it as business calls. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm impressed by that because, well, I'm doing it right now. I see how much work it is, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not an easy thing to do. Of course, you started pretty early too. So that's a good, does snowball over it does. the years. Yeah. Right. Still kind of impressive. Think about maybe getting a couple of VAs and putting that in your head. Like, no. I've, <laughs> I've thought of it, um, but I kind of have a control issue. Yes. Especially when it comes to legal things like getting PAs and stuff correct. You know, to have a contractor is one thing, but uh, really when I'm doing FaceTime with clients, I want to make sure it's done accurately the first time. And if there's a problem, I got nobody to blame but myself. Okay. You don't think you can train somebody to do it accurately? It could be up for negotiation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just planting that seed because like eight to nine million by yourself. That's pretty now in California. It's like three houses, but here in Michigan, 82 sides, man. That's a lot of damn contracts. I wonder how many hours that is. And if you haven't seen a Michigan MLS contract, Jesus, it's like 25 pages of shit with addendums and right. disclosures, disclosures and every other damn thing. And yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing. You probably have a process though for it too, right? I do. It's more just a mental checklist though. Yeah just from doing it so many times. Yeah, just break it in. Some point, though, you mentioned that you're like, hey, let's get into this multi-family situation, right? Like apartment complexes, right? Sure. How did that work out? How did you get started in that? Oh, well, uh, another renegade that I've known for quite a while, and actually I met him through uh, an online portal, um, I don't know, discussion board, chat board. Uh, met him through there and actually did some uh, transactions for him as a buyer's agent because he was huh. building up his single family holdings. That's pretty cool. And just maintain contact uh, over the years. He hadn't bought anything through me in quite a while, but just maintain contact. And it was more just me reaching out to him like I do with all my clients. Just, hey, how's it going? Just doing a pulse check. And that's when uh, the conversation led that he was kind of stopping doing the single family homes and getting more into multi. And... I didn't act upon that right away, even though he asked me if I was interested. Yeah, <laughs> I just let that marinate in the back of my mind for about a year. Um, and then we would still talk more and more frequently, and he would let me know of some deals that he was considering. And uh, we came across one that really intrigued me that seemed to make a lot of sense. Mm. Now, this is a big switch up, though, from single family to multifamily, right? It was. Yeah. It was. It was big in that the numbers are a lot bigger. There's a lot more zeros on this. Um, but it was also really big in a better use of time because I'm not managing all these tenants. You know, we've added Let's a talk lot of about tenants, that, but that's huge, right? Right. Yeah. Cause so how many units is your apartment? It's a 63 unit. Yeah. Could you imagine having 63 single family homes all across? Right. Even oh. with a partner having 31 properties would just be terrible. Yeah. And so, now you have them all in one spot. Right. Yeah. Now, the financing on these are a little different, too. Can you walk us through how you uh, finance these? So it's a lot more, as far as commercial loans go through a, a, a main lender or a commercial lender, 
you, they're not going to get away without putting 20 or 25% down. Um, and they will amortize them typically 20, 25 years. And they all require a balloon after 10 or 15 years. Yeah. Um, but to try to get out of doing like next to nothing, next to no money down, it's it's nearly impossible. Yeah. The cool thing about it, though, is 63 units at one time, right? That's, right. Uh, it's kind of like you can shoot a, a white-tailed doe or you can shoot a fucking moose, right? <laughs> right. You're, you're doing one shot, one kill, you know? Exactly. Get exactly. 63 uh, units. Um, now... Let's go back to the wifey situation. Do you have to sell this to the wifey or by this point in time, she's like, you're doing a great job. Knock it out, Mark. You know, it was a little bit of both. Um, she had a lot of confidence in me and the confidence in the partner I partnered with on it <clears throat> just by knowing his reputation and how tenacious he is with analyzing deals. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but at the same time, they're big numbers to come off a big down payment like that. Albeit scary it's only 10%. Numbers. It's it's scary. It's yeah. It's very intimidating. Uh, you're, you know, you're really second guessing yourself, making sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed. Um, but at the same time, you're not going to get ahead if you don't take any action. Yeah. It's a risk, so, right? It is. It is. How'd you guys do your due diligence on something like that? We did it all ourselves. Um, <clears throat> analyzed the seller's numbers up and down, analyzed every service contract that the sellers had. We reviewed literally every tenant lease. Um, we walked, we did our own inspection of the property. We didn't do a third party on the building itself. So he and I were literally in the attic of this building crawling around there in an August day. Dude, that's hardcore. <laughs> you should have Facebook live that. That would have been awesome. Here I am in an attic. <laughs> yeah. Shit, it's hot. <laughs> right. We're looking down an elevator shaft. I found Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was nothing pretty. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, but the, the items that we weren't familiar with, we ended up hiring a contractor to, check those, but we walked through every unit ourselves, took good notes of all the defects in the property. And in some regards, it's similar to a single family home due diligence. You're just doing it 63 times in two months, yeah. right? 63. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Again and again and again. Exactly. Were they, was this a turnaround project or was it relatively established or well, kind of it's, between? It's kind of in between. The seller did a good job of putting a bunch of tenants in just before they sold it to make the numbers look better. Oh, yeah, one of those. <laughs> yeah, one of those. So they got, you know, very low security deposits, a lot of new newer tenants. Um, I think they did that just to try to pad the numbers to make it look like a more attractive deal. Yeah. And I, I understand where they're coming from on that. But it's more of a turnaround project in that, not from an income perspective, but from an expense management perspective. The expenses that they're running on it were just astronomically high. I guess this is an efficiency problem. They're they're not doing things efficiently. No, it was an owner operator. They weren't using a third party property management company like he and I are. Yeah, see, that's the interesting thing too. So the opportunities are different in multifamily, right? They're similar, but they're different. Could you? I, I know it's based a lot on cash flow, but could you walk us um, through your decision process on that kind of thing and how you turn these things around and where the value is? Sure. So. You know, a lot of it at the end of the day comes down to cap rate. You know, the cap rate's a good initial gut feeling to, to indicate whether or not a property could be a good value. Um, but then when you start diving in deeper to the current income level, based on how similar properties are performing in the area, as far as rents that they're bringing in, uh, that's a great opportunity or a great chance to learn if there's an opportunity to raise rents or if you're already charging a premium in rents to know that you might have a bigger risk on your hands if you're trying to maintain that. Interesting point. Yeah. And then <clears throat> looking at the expenses and really analyzing expenses, a lot of it's verifiable, like property taxes, 
You can uh, get your own quotes for insurance. Utilities, you can verify through due diligence to see actual billing amounts. Uh, Property management fees are rather standardized. Um, But then it depends on how much you you want to hold in reserves for repairs and maintenance, if there are any capital improvements that need to be made initially. Now, what – I don't know if you mind sharing this. What was the cap rate on this one before you guys start turning it around? It's about a seven and a half, seven point seven, somewhere in there. Which isn't great, but right. you look past the cap rate. A lot of people just stop at the cap rate, right? Right. Yeah. So explain how. <clears throat> so you look past the cap rate and go, wait a second, that's not right. Yeah. Well, when you start looking at their numbers and you're thinking, man, this is some of this stuff is just way overinflated. And in this case, it may have very well been to put them in a better tax position by showing more write-offs. It's hard saying, but we knew that we could operate the building much, much more efficiently, maintain income right where it was. The rents are right on par. They're not overinflated. They're not under market necessarily, but the expenses were 70% of income. That is crazy. What should they be? Ish. About 50%. Yeah. fifty. So it's a huge opportunity to really turn this thing around into a nine and a half, 10 cap. Did in you a very guys short period identify of time. what where you thought the problem was, or it was in their <clears throat> internal management costs. Yeah, getting they're doing something wrong there. So, and for those listening, so I think anyway, cap rate is net <clears throat> operating income divided by purchase price plus acquisition plus closing costs, non financed. Correct. Right. All right. Good. I'm saying my CCIM coming right. in handy. Right. So. They're like, what's a cap rate? It's not the same as an ROI because a lot of people get confused about that. So sure. net operating income, meaning if you raise the net operating income either by raising rents or reducing expenses, then you raise the cap rate. That's so, right. There you go. I just lined it out for you guys. So how'd you find that um, deal? Uh, that was a deal that actually the partner that I bought it with um, learned of on LoopNet, of all things. He was on LoopNet and saw that deal pop up. Boom. Just like that. And he's like, like, hey, Mark, come do this deal with me. Yeah, he sent me the link, and I was immediately excited about it just because we had looked at so many prior to that, and 99% of them are duds. They just don't make sense. And just by looking at it instantly, you could just just get a good gut feel on it, and we could tell right away. And we immediately set up an appointment and looked at it the next day, literally. Wow, that could – so did you – Letter of intent, or you just went and looked at it? We went and looked at it the next day, and then that evening we submitted a letter of intent. Boom, just like that. That's fast. That's how you do it, though, when you get these deals, right? Right, yeah. right. Act, take action. How many of the units did you get through that day? I think one. One. Yeah, just enough. Like, okay. Just enough. Yeah. Yeah, we you know looked at the outside area, looked at the common area, went in the mechanical room. Uh, we were there maybe 45 minutes, but we knew it just made sense. Do you think the seller knew they had an expense problem, or...? I think they did. They just couldn't figure out how to fix it. They probably knew how to fix it, but I think that this was, <clears throat> they're a really large investor. They own a lot of properties. And I think that this was just not a property that was of interest to them. Too or small. To improve. Too, might, exactly. Yeah. Way too small. They invest uh, in our area, all across Michigan, and then also down south. Yeah. Okay. That's a cool thing about real estate. There's like a level for everybody in right. there, right? And, and you get so big that even a 63 units, like, that shit's just too small. <laughs> exactly. You're I'm going to sell it. it. You're like, yes, I'm getting a deal. <laughs> sure. So, um, how do you, I'm out, do you look for a multifamily every day or how do you prospect for multifamily? Well, it's kind of similar to wholesaling. Back to our wholesaling days, we've been mailing out yellow letters okay. to property owners in the areas where we want to invest. And we do it based on the SEV because we don't want to go after too small of a deal. 
And we know we're limited on how big of a deal we could take down. Yeah. That's a pretty good way to do it, <clears throat> having success with it. We are. We've been getting a lot of callbacks. It's maybe been a 3 to 4% uh, return. Of That's pretty good. Calls. Yeah, it is. It's That's very really good. good. Yep. Um, and a lot of those people are just tire kickers wanting to know what we would offer without even seeing the place or out seeing out any numbers. But there are people that we're adding to our database that we can, you know, more heavily solicit when it comes time to look for some more. Guy don't walk across a lot unless he wants to buy, right? right. So same thing with sellers. If they call. That's right. Got it. You're saying there's a chance. <laughs> exactly. And we're well connected with all the big commercial brokers in the area. Um, of course, I have access to the MLS, but there aren't a whole lot of multifamily deals on the MLS. No, they don't. It's pretty much just through commercial brokers who don't have a centralized repository. That is one thing working with commercial that has just frustrated the hell out of me. They just yeah. very little cooperation. Very, they just nobody wants to help anybody. And no, does not seem like it'd be in the best interest of their clients. But for whatever reason, it just persists. Yeah, they. I would imagine that virtually all of their deals they get both sides of. They yeah. don't cooperate with other brokers. Just exactly yeah. what you said. They don't share commission. It's it's all them or none. Which I get it, but at the same time, I, I wonder how much more the sellers would make if they cooperated, kind of like the MLS. I don't like agents in general, but <laughs> the MLS is great for selling shit for top dollar. It is. It really it is. is. That's how you're going to get the most amount of exposure yeah. for your property. There should be, and there are multiple MLSs for a commercial, but there should be like an MLS for the commercial where you can add it. Like there is real comp in right. Michigan, right? Where most right. people, if you put something on real comp, the vast majority of people are going to see it. So sure. it's one of the crazy things. So. What do you think uh, the future holds for you in multifamily? What are, what are the goals? What are the USHAC goals? <laughs> I guess I haven't thought of any or made any concrete goals for multifamily. I think of myself more as an opportunist. And yeah, so more like Jeff, you, you, you <clears throat> keep your options open and you jump on opportunity. I do, right. I'm not going to completely abandon single family homes. There are some that I would definitely sell when they go vacant. I'm not going to evict tenants I'm not going to abandon cash flow I have now to go chase different cash flow. But when those people do vacate, and if the market's still as hot as it is now, I'll definitely sell those and go after some more multifamilies. Otherwise, we'll just keep on doing deals organically, save up money from doing commission deals. And if there's an opportunity out there that makes sense, then we'll jump on it. You strike. So that's a good question. When it comes to planning, it sounds like you're not necessarily a goal guy and work your way backwards. So... What is your approach? I guess I look at all opportunities and see if they make sense. <clears throat> and if they do make sense, then they're worth you know further review, further consideration. Um, but otherwise, I'm programmed just to keep on doing what I'm doing that works. Um, you know, I've built a great agent business, so I keep on fostering that. That does tend to wear you down and you get tired of it. And I can see how agents definitely get burnt out on it. <laughs> Absolutely. You're doing 80, you did 82 doors without even an assistant, dude. Yeah, it, it gets tiring. There's no doubt about it. So that's where the multifamily is kind of nice in that the one that we bought two months ago, I've only been there twice. So it's nice. You're just reviewing statements and you're interacting with the property manager and you're collecting the cash flow. So the more of that that I can do to free up more time, from having to deal with single family home investing, the better. I don't think that I'll ever completely give up being an agent just because I get a lot of satisfaction out of it. Really? And I just, I kind of look at it like a hobby. It's just, I really, really do enjoy what I'm doing. It's not, uh, it's not like laborsome to me. Do you prefer buyers or sellers or both? More of like a 
both 50 50 you know ideally when you get a listing and you can retain those people as a buyer as well that's really nice you get a buy sell sell buy. Yeah, yeah yeah exactly right yeah that's always good well then you yeah it's even more commission better relationship that's right yeah yep what technology do do you have like a crm or, or how do you how do you 82 doors i keep coming back to this how do you organize that by yourself <laughs> sure yeah. um for that i use top producer Okay. Top producer is the CRM I used and I've been using it for years. I literally I'd be lost without top producer. Yeah. I used top producer a little bit when I first started at Keller Williams and they switched us to team lead. So you actually like top producer. I do, but that's, I say that, but I haven't really compared it to anything else because I'm in the trenches every day and I'm busy chasing business or, you know, business is coming to me that I'm managing that I haven't compared and contrasted it with anything else. So I pay the 35 bucks a month and I just keep on using it. 82 sides too. I mean, it works. I mean, obviously. Yeah, right. I'm not a big, why rock the boat if what I got is working? Do you have like a daily routine or schedule that you follow? Like you prospect at certain I prospect every day. Every day. It doesn't matter what time of the day it happens. I try to do late morning to early afternoon. That's when I find I get the best result. Um, But no matter what's going on in my day, I make sure that I, even if it's a half hour, sometimes upwards of two hours, I'm prospecting. And a lot of it's old leads. It's not like I'm doing – I never do cold calls. It's it's a lead that I was introduced to somehow, some way, um, and just, just hammering on them. So you just go back through your database of leads you've got, and you just work them. Anybody that's you haven't right. touched, any contacts. And that's what's nice about Top Producer because you can set reminders or basically like effectively a to-do list. So you just enter in notes or whatever the conversation may be and set a reminder for some date in the future so you can continue the conversation. You do that every day, Monday through Friday, at least for 30 minutes. Every day. Yeah, every day. So that's pretty awesome. What other technology do you use, like Google Calendar, anything like that? I see you do have a cell phone, a smartphone at least, right? Yeah, I do have a cell phone. Uh, it's obviously a smartphone. Yeah. Do it. I can con- conduct a ton of business off the smartphone. But otherwise, it kind of goes back to the in-print advertising. I'm old school. I make a to-do list every day. It's handwritten. And I'd be lost without it. <laughs> and I always carry a few days ahead of schedule to-do lists. Just in case? Well, just because I'm going to have appointments into the future. If I get somebody who calls or texts me today wants to do something on Friday, you know, I need to know what my schedule is for Friday. I don't use uh, Google Calendar or anything like that. I write everything down. Damn, that is some serious old school shit, man. <laughs> I might be able to help you out here. I don't know how you feel about uh, electronic calendars, but they're kind of awesome, dude. Although I do both. I have like a calendar I carry around with me and... I have an electronic calendar. I like my electronic calendar. This is what you might like about it. You can set it to annoy you to remind you to go, <laughs> which for someone like me is actually pretty important. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm like, shit, what am I doing again? Like, if I don't put it in my calendar, it's just not happening. So I'll forget about it. I need to get like text or something. Like, oh, yeah, I need to go do that. So maybe that's just me. You don't seem to have a problem with that. So <laughs> what do you think the future holds for Mark Ushek? I don't know. I, I just keep on doing what I'm doing. Um, you know, like you said, obviously what I've got cooking is working. Yeah. It's not, uh, it, you know, I'm sure there's room for improvement everything, right? The Ushek team? Yeah. I don't know that I ever want to build a team. I'm just pretty happy just being accountable to myself and whatever else I got going on. Um, I know what my own capacity is and I'm just, I just maintain what I got. I don't know that I'll really grow my business, like commission business anymore, agent business. Um, but I would be very happy with getting some more good producing multifamily properties. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to work my way into that as well. I think that is the future, right? 
Right. 63 doors and one whack. Yeah, it was a lot of work, but... And it's all the work damn. is up front. You know, right now, it's it's as close to set it and forget it as you can get. Dude, that's a good point. Talk about that. Because that is different. With single-family homes, all the work's on the back end. Multifamily, it it's all on the front end. Can you compare and contrast that So for all us? the work with, you know, multifamilies, it's all in the numbers and how well the property performs. And the best way to validate that is before you even buy it. You know, you don't want to know you got a mess on your hands after you've closed. So to mitigate that risk, you're doing all that work up front, the very thorough analysis, you know, late nights, looking through service contracts, all that boring mundane crap uh, to make sure that you're getting a good, solid performing deal. And then once you've closed, you're just maintaining what you already know that the property is. So you're working with the property manager, you know, you set goals with the property manager, expectations, uh, and then you're you're watching them perform, not on a day-to-day basis, more on a every couple weeks basis. You're checking in with them, uh, reviewing uh, owner ledgers, things of that sort. Yeah, a lot of work up front. How many hours do you think it took you guys to analyze your 63 unit? <laughs> yeah, we talked about that. We would think, we estimated that we're probably between... 100 to 150 hours each Holy shit. working on that thing. Yeah, that's the... But you close and it's just, it drops right off. Yeah. Still, that's crazy. People hear that like, what? That's like three or four weeks, basically, of nonstop right. work. But if you think about it, you're going to hold that property for maybe 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. Who knows? If it's a real winner, you're going to hold it for a long time, unless you need to reposition it, or you're going to sell it for doing something different. But that's, it's really, time-wise, it's not a whole lot of time for the investment that you're getting out of it. No, it's hard the, to convince yourself to do it though, right? Right. It's monumental. You're going to, you could do it and end up with nothing, right? Sure. Yeah. Sure. How many times does that happen? We can usually tell pretty quickly in the beginning, just like with our own acid test of checking the, really the cap rate, just looking at the owner's financials, drive out to the properties, look at, just look around, walk them. So you can have what, like maybe 10 hours to kick it to the curb or even Yeah, less? just maybe okay. not even a couple hours. So not even that bad. Yeah, All it's right. not that bad. So it's only really bad if you're close. If you're close and if, you, you know, if you've gotten a signed LOI, then you're, you're getting there. Yeah, and that's letter of intent for those, uh, for those listening. So what about, I don't know if you're a podcast guy, but I know you said in the email too, you don't really have any books, but I thought I would ask, is there any books or anything like that or anything you would recommend that helped you out? Or whatever it is that helped you out, do you think it would help other people out that you'd like to share? So I've been reading some multifamily investing books lately. Um, off the top of my head, I couldn't even tell you what the titles of them are. I just find them interesting just because that's what my focus has been on as of late. Um, otherwise, I think a lot of it just comes down to personality type of being able to follow up and have some follow through. If you really, you know, if you got, if you set a goal or if you have something in the back of your mind that you want to accomplish, you just got to go after it. There's really no magic to it. Just do it. Right. Just do it. Just do it. <laughs> Monday through Friday. Or you're like Monday through Sunday. Yeah. Monday through Saturday. Monday through Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take one day. <laughs> yeah, whatever the case may be. Dude, that's awesome. Is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't talked about you want to cover? Do you want to plug anything? Do you want to any looking for anything? Want to make something happen? Want to share with anybody? If you know of any off-market multifamily properties, uh, definitely use the links that Jeremy provided and hit me up. Where are you shopping at? Where in Michigan are you looking? Uh, we're predominantly looking more of like mid-Michigan area. 
Okay. We're not so much in the Southeast area. If there's something in the Southeast that's good and it makes sense, we won't say no to it. But uh, otherwise, we like being a little bit further west. Yeah. There you go, folks. Go to, let me pull this back up, Mark Yushak, Y-U-S-C-H-A-K.com, Mark Yushak.com. Hit him up at 810-348-9747 or mushak at gmail.com. All right, folks, if you enjoy this podcast and find it helpful, here's what I need you to do. I need you to rate and review on iTunes. If you haven't already, please go and do that. Hey, this really does help me out. Um, I don't invent these things. This is just how it goes. This is how iTunes decides things are important. For the 44 of you who have done it, thank you. I really do appreciate it. If you do like it, please go over there and do it. Also, share this podcast. So Mark took time out of his day to drive all the way down here to Southeast Michigan, do a podcast with us. Let's let's share this. Let's get the word out. Let's help it out. Let's grow the podcast. So share it across Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff. Get the word out. And I want to thank my guest, Mark, for coming out today. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. Had a good time. And Go to renegadedetroit.com if you have any comments, uh, questions, or suggestions. If you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash renegadedetroitinvestors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. And, of course, you can always go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. And as I wrap up this podcast, yes, I do it every week. As I wrap up this podcast, I'm going to. I'm going to leverage a little bit of Mark right here. Come on, man. What are you, what are you doing? You're just sitting at home. Are you, are you doing what you want to do to get ahead, or are you fucking around? You know you know if you're fucking around, playing video games, watching TV. Maybe you're in that shit job you hate. I'm not saying quit your job. Keep it, but pull a little Mark right here, right? Maybe get your license. Maybe do something. It doesn't matter what you're going to do. That's why I like doing this podcast. There's lots of ways to go about doing this. He's perfectly happy turning 82 doors a year by himself, right? You don't have to build a big team. You can just start helping buyers out. Maybe you want to wholesale. Whatever it is, pick some goals. Stick with it. Don't give up. Do something every day. As we say in Detroit, every day gets close to your goals, even if it's one step. And I want to thank you for listening. I know you could be doing lots of other things right now. For everybody who rated, reviewed, and shared and all that, there's a bunch of you. Really appreciate you guys and gals. And until the next podcast... Crush it.